Hi guys, and welcome back to Tales from Mysteria Lane, the podcast where we give you a fair view of all things Desperate Housewives. I'm Joel. I'm Billy Ray. And today we will be discussing season three, episode one, Listen to the Rain on the Roof. Yeah, we're back. We are. Well, we never left. We never left it, did we? (laughs) Love that title though. I love the title. I think it's a really cool title. Mm. Um, So as per usual, we'll be splitting it. So I, this week, shall be doing the breakdown of the episode and B will be doing the trivia. So B, do you have anything to start us off? I do. I have loads of trivia. So I'm going to jump in. So this episode was written by Mark Cherry and Jeff Greenstein and directed by Larry Shaw. Jeff Greenstein is a semi-new writer for the show. And this episode originally aired on the 24th of September, 2007. The episode title, Listen to the Rain on the Roof, is a song by Stephen Sondheim, of course, from the musical Follies. Oh, okay. (laughs) According to ABC, Listen to the Rain on the Roof was watched by 24.09 million viewers, placing it as the second most watched program of the week on all networks behind ABC's Grey's Anatomy. Oh, no surprise there. Bitches love Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) The episode was watched by 4 million less viewers than the second season premiere, though, a year earlier, but it did manage to outperform the second season's finale. Oh, okay. Cherry's decision to advance the storylines by six months by the third season premiere came as a response to the series' problematic second season. This is all research, by the way. I didn't say it was problematic. The cast also expressed disappointment in the second season. James Denton, for example, who plays Mike, considered leaving the show. And Marsha Cross confessed, I've been at Mike's door plenty of times, with script complaints going, You've got to be kidding! Apparently, Cherry stated that the six-month time jump would help the storylines develop quicker, and the second season's storylines lagged a bit, apparently. He added, and I'm going to work much harder to crisscross all of the women's stories so that their lives bump up against each other. Which, personally, I think will be nice for Lynette. Yeah, we did mention that quite a few times uh, in season two, especially with Lynette. And more than anyone was that Lynette was very separate from the rest of the girls for a large sort of portion of season two. Yes, for most of it, it felt like Susan, Gabby and Brie were A scenarios and Lynette was B scenario. Yeah, yeah. But at the, at the same time, I I enjoy season two. Yeah, I um I thought season two was really enjoyable. We had some really good moments. So I was quite surprised to see that they thought it was, and I quote, problematic or or whatever. Mm. But um, we already knew from previous trivia that Mark Cherry regretted not having as much involvement in season two and that he kind of wasn't very proud of it. Yeah, Mark Cherry's been quite vocal in the past about um, season two and how it's it's certainly not his favorite season but i don't know i definitely think there is a worse season of desperate housewives out there i do think there are a couple of worse ones but season two is enjoyable even if it gets a bit more melodramatic yeah and season two's got betty (laughs) like can we not discount alfred woodard please like i'm gonna miss betty so much so to help refresh the show several new writers were hired including greenstein who wrote this episode there's also joe keenan who also served as an executive producer and bob daly who was also a producer okay so we've got some new staff new writers and all that mm. and okay let's talk about the guest stars so this episode introduces dougray or dougray i'm not sure how you pronounce his name but let's say dougray dougray scott who is a scottish actor and he's been in films such as mission impossible 2 hitman and my week with marilyn so he's introduced as a recurring character in this season the thing about ian is that I hate him and he's one of my least favourite characters in this entire show and I really hate the trope of having the English character in an American show who has a lot of Americanisms in their English upper British speak. Yes, don't don't get me wrong, Doug Ray's a fantastic actor. He does very well in the role, but the character of Ian I just find to be really infuriating. I'm not sure if it's because I'm British and so I just watch it and I'm just like, but that's not what we're like. I know it's an over-dramatised show, but even that. But it's a trope that we don't like like you and me especially yeah whenever we watch american shows or films and they have the english person who says something american and we're like we don't say that (laughs) yeah but then again i think it's just like a common thing like when english characters are brought into american shows they just don't like them i mean come on emily and friends yeah my brother and sister hate her people hate emily in friends but in all fairness to doug ray scott or do gray scott he did do the role pretty well in all honesty and i'm not going to blame him for any script that he had but his acting in general was fine yeah i mean it's certainly not doug ray's fault like the character was written the way the character was written you know as an actor he just performs what's written for him and given to him we also have and um this is exciting for me we have laurie metcalf as carolyn bigsby Mm -hmm. in this episode she's an american actress who's been in tv shows such as absolutely fabulous malcolm in the middle the big bang theory and monk 
as well as being in films such as Uncle Buck, Scream 2, and most notably, and where I really recognised her from, was Lady Bird. Oh, yeah, because she's her, the mum in Lady Bird, isn't she? Yes, she played um, Soise Ronan's character's mum, and she was nominated for a Golden Globe Award, an Academy Award, a BAFTA, a Critics' Choice Award, and an Independent Spirit Award for her role in that. Really? Yeah, because oh she was God. really good. She, she was. was. She really portrayed that hard-working, working-class mum who's just trying to keep it together as a nurse and all that. Yeah. I remember her mostly from Scream 2 as Gail <laughs> Weathers, like, adversary. <laughs> She's described herself as a workaholic and stated that she's hard on herself during rehearsals. She said that she prefers theatre over other acting media as it's where she feels the most comfortable. And she has also appeared in commercials for Plan USA, a humanitarian organisation that helps children in need around the world. Okay. So another guest star in the show who we stan. Yes, we do. We once again get Kirsten or Kirsten Warren, who returns as the infamous Nora. Yes. Fan favourite. Not really. People hated Nora. People hated Nora. And I mean, I don't particularly like Nora, but Nora is a welcome addition to the show. I love Nora because she brings so much drama. Yeah. And I can feel myself hating her, which I like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think I, I think Nora gets too much hate. So from this episode on, she becomes a series regular. She's an American actress best known for playing Alex Tabor in Saved by the Bell, The College Years. I have no idea if I pronounced that right. As well as Nora in Desperate Housewives, of course. She's been in films such as Independence Day, Bicentennial Man, and 13 Going On 30. Oh, yeah. Just added that to our watch list on Amazon, babe. <laughs> and finally, we are introduced to Alma Hodge in the opening of this very episode, and she's played by American actress and producer Valerie Mahaffey. She's known for portraying extroverted and friendly, but ultimately insane women on TV shows. This is from my research. I'm not saying that. Such as on Wings, Devious Maids, and Big Sky. Ah, she's, she comes back for Devious Maids, does she? She works <laughs> with Mark Cherry again. Also, she won the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series for her performance as Eve in the CBS series Northern Exposure in 1992. She was the only actor from the series to win an Emmy. Oh, wow. Mm. She is great. I love Alma Hodge. I have one more thing. So just one more. Um, this is from an IMDb review. It's not a funny review, but I found this interesting. It said, so basically this reviewer, Ted underscore Pikale, on the 12th of October 2006, gave it 7 out of 10 stars. The title was Tribute to Twin Peaks? Question mark, question mark. Which um, awesome awesome is was in. in. It said, am I the only person that thinks this episode contains a tribute to David Lynch's excellent Twin Peaks? To be more explicit, when I see Kyle MacLachlan, awesome, involved with a talking parrot, it makes something in my mind click, especially when the bird is acting as an eyewitness to a murder. Does this not remind us of something else, another time, another place, but the same actor, although this time on the other side of the law? Is it my imagination, or is this a short but glorious reference to the series that, in my eyes, heavily inspired Desperate Housewives? Oh, I, I can't really speak because I've never seen Twin Peaks. Nor have I. Um, it is on my watch list. It's such a known show mm -hmm. for its bizarreness that I want to watch it, but I thought that was interesting. Yeah. So people are drawing these comparisons. Yeah. I think it is a very fun coincidence or sometimes a bit of a little nod or a homage to um, previous shows that characters have been in. Yeah, especially if obviously Karl McLachlan was in Twin Peaks, which he was. Yeah, like they did with Brie when um, they put her in the psychiatric ward because she had a previous character who was in a psychiatric ward. Oh yeah, Melrose Place. Yeah. Um, but that's all my trivia. Okay, that was really good. Thank you, Del. So, we open with another flashback, because you haven't had enough of those in the last couple of episodes, giving us the story of Alma Hodge. Alma is Orson's first wife, and apparently her day starts out relatively normally until she sort of snaps and tries to run away. As soon as Orson leaves for work, she packs her bags, goes to leave, trips up, drops the birdcage, loses the bird who flies out, and um, we then cut to Orson in the car, who notices he's got a little bit of dirt on his shirt, which apparently Orson doesn't like. So he turns the car around and comes back home and Alma's too busy trying to get the bird back in the cage that she doesn't hear him pulling up. And then Orson comes in, catches Alma and sinisterly closes the door. Mm, yeah. What a great first shot as well. The very first shot, it pans up to Alma, who's just in front of the window, but it looks really dark and creepy. It gives you like a haunted house vibe. Yeah, I get very sort of um, uncanny valley almost. Like everything's beautiful and white picket fence and and stunning and happy but there's just this sort of like realistic person slap bang in the middle that acknowledges that everything around her seems to be too perfect well also the house is somewhat silhouetted where the lights come from behind it so it's shot in a way to make it look beautiful with the flowers in front of it but then very dark yeah because the house is in darkness almost yeah so that was great i love that opening shot and 
<laughs> the way that Alma has to do everything so neatly and perfectly for Orson, is Orson like me turned up to 11? Yeah, Orson just sounds a tad controlling. Just, just a tad. Just but a tad. Almost a, almost a perfect fit for Brie. Yep, yep. A very, very much perfect fit for Brie. Like, even to the point where he's trained Alma on how to fold the towels and put them away. And then before he goes to work every morning, she rolls over him with a lint roller. That's just a bit extra. Right. Like, she's she's your wife, Orson, not a slave. Like, <laughs> talk about archaic. Yeah, and they really wanted you to know that she felt like a slave of that not-so-subtle birdcage shot. Yes, yep. So, uh, the following day... Their neighbour, Carolyn Bigsby, stops by, letting herself in, by the way. She just sort of walks in <laughs> to the property, looking for armour. Only Orson is there, gloves on, deep cleaning, and he tells Caroline... Caroline? Carolyn. Carolyn, sorry. He tells Carolyn that armour left. No idea where, but she's fine, and that's when the parrot rats him out by saying, Orson, no! <laughs> Car- Carolyn's perfect. <laughs> Caroline is... Ca- I keep saying Caroline. Stop. Carolyn is perfect. It's like Barry Ellis said, Carolyn Bigsby knew that the best way to, f- to get gas airport to find out what was going on is to not knock right she just comes in she said i was supposed to have a coffee date with armor yesterday she never showed love it <laughs> so good but so, this, um, this bird really wanted to just cause some shit today didn't it yeah it's so disrespectful this bird it like does she, she's there like the mama loves her baby does the baby love mama no the baby does not love mama apparently right. that bird did not fly back into that cage until orson was back in the room and then shouting orson no yeah that's so rude it just wants to stir the pot yeah so orson eventually manages to get rid of carolyn and then he also gets rid of the bird. And we end this scene with Orson putting an empty bird cage out on the side of the road. Yeah, it does imply that there was a bird murder. It does imply that he had an early Christmas dinner. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so we then go straight into another flashback of six months prior to the current timeline that we will be in when we finish with all the flashbacks. <laughs> so we're basically going to where we kind of left off. Pretty much, yes. Yeah. Bree and Orson are just finishing up on their first date, making out in the rain. At the same time, Gabby's conferring with her divorce lawyer about Carlos's affair. Lynette's meeting Tom's illegitimate child, Kayla, for the first time. And Susan has just found out about Mike's hit and run and that he is now in a coma at Fairview Memorial. Oh, and Edie is putting up a for sale sign at the Young's house and, like, feeling herself up in the rain. I was going to say, I, I did specifically point out Edie feeling herself in the rain she was there like hands in her hair like and then she sort of runs off of her hands in the air yeah and i was like what is this <laughs> it's, it's a fantastic moment is what that was it was great it was great i feel like edie or nicolette sheridan thought that she was in some sort of advert for something yeah nutrice means nourish yeah <laughs> <laughs> but i love the shot i like when cameras do this sort of long panning around showing what everyone's up to it's um it's quite effective interesting filmmaking when you have multiple characters yes yeah i like that so we cut to present day, finally, and Edie is showing potential buyers around the young house and Karen isn't making it easy for her, telling everyone about Felicia's murder. <laughs> Edie overhears this and drags her away, kicking her out of the house. I... <laughs> Karen. <laughs> oh, maybe you have a better time selling the uh, Apple White house with that rec room in the basement. <laughs> yeah, I really liked that. And Edie just manhandling Karen around the place. Yeah, those are for potential... You wither old mooch. <laughs> poor Karen. <laughs> poor Karen. And poor Edie as well. Yeah, Karen's in there trying to like... Edie's business. Yeah, but she's an old lady. She doesn't know better. So she does know better. Let's not, <laughs> let's not give her that credit because she's old. She doesn't know better. Karen knows better. She's just there to fuck shit up and have a good time. Clearly. I, um, I love that scene. She's screwing over Edie in the process and we are not having it. Also, Edie looks fabulous in that red suit. Oh, she does. She really she does. so good in that red suit in that scene. Uh, I mean, I know she's there to impress potential buyers. So that's why she's dressed up. But girl, that red suit was amazing. Good job. Yeah. Which will not be the best outfit of the episode because he's not doing that anymore. I'm not doing best outfit of the episode anymore, I'm not. But I will try to make a conscious effort to point out outfits I still like. So, Lynette is trying to do the family Christmas photo, including Kayla in the mix. However, Lynette is shocked when Nora sits herself down in the frame. Looks like Nora's trying to sort of force her way into the family and Tom doesn't have the balls to tell her to back off. Eventually, Lynette tells Nora that she would prefer if she wasn't in the photo, and Nora takes this to mean Kayla too, and goes to leave with her. Well, that's what she makes out like it is anyway. Yeah. Honey, they're kicking us out. Right? <laughs> they don't want us here? They're kicking us out. She like, rips off the Christmas hat and like, <laughs> throws it on the floor. This level of manipulation eventually makes Lynette back down, and Nora jumps on the kids, making it impossible for her to get cropped out of the photo. Nora's there like, I feel like this photo is a little stiff. And then she jumps on the kids. That's not why she jumps on the kids. She jumps on the kids because she knows full well she cannot get cropped out of this photo if she's there slap bang in the middle. Yeah, the lady ain't stupid. Yeah. Also, she wants to be the centre of attention. She does want to be she the centre of attention. She wants to be the main point of this photo. With her summary 
little dress yeah. for a Christmas photo. It really wasn't a Christmas dress. And to be fair, Nora does sort of deserve to be on the sofa with the rest of the kids. <laughs> so straight away, Nora is so fantastic and so unlikable. But I was yeah. I was a little bit on her side. <laughs> Why? And that is probably the only time I'll say that. But look, you're doing a family Christmas photo, Lynette. You could do one with like all of you, including Kayla and Nora. And you could do one with just you and the kids. You could do one with just Nora and Kayla, just the kids. There's different ways you could do it, but there's no reason to really want to kick someone out of a yeah. photo. It just seems a bit mean. Bitchy. Yeah, I did have, However, like, um, I got like a little note that says, I'd take a few photos. Perfect. We think this... But we haven't had to deal with Nora for six months. So I also can't blame Lynette as well because she's at the end of her tether. Yeah, like for us, this is our first thing with Nora. And we're like, Lynette, you're being really unfair. Come on. But Lynette's dealt with this for six months. (laughs) True. So maybe we shouldn't be judging. Maybe not. But the smart thing to do is to take several photos. Exactly. And then you wouldn't be left with the one with Nora on the kids either. Because she'd be like, yeah, haha, Nora, that was so fun. But now let's take a bit more of a mature photo. Or how about you're in the frame, bitch, move. (laughs) So how the turntables and Gabby is now waiting on Xiaomei, who is heavily pregnant and giving Gabby a whole lot of attitude for someone that fucked her husband. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, Gabby's having a bad time. A real bad time. She still looks fabulous, though. Her hair is all in disarray. She's got Lynette's shirt on. Yeah. But she looks great still. She is dressed like Lynette, but she's kind of rocking it. Yeah, she does kind of rock it. And I know it's unfair to Lynette because Lynette dresses like Lynette all the time and looks like a hot mess. But Gabby just dresses like Lynette once. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's fashion. Different kind of bridge troll. <laughs> True. <laughs> That's so unfair to Melissa Huffman. <laughs> She's just a different kind of bridge trial, really. <laughs> so apparently the doctor said that Xiaomei should only get out of bed to pee as it's better for the baby. And Gabby goes to leave and Xiaomei tries to get Gabby to rub her chubby stumps. But this proves to be too much for Gabby, who reminds her of how lucky she is to be staying there and not with Carlos in his ratty apartment. I have to say, Gabby's got a damn good point. She does. She has a really good point. She's like, oh, where are my crackers? Oh, pickles and soup. Who eats that? Ever heard of a store? Right? And then she like throws the pickle on the floor. That is just disrespectful. Xiaomei, I know Gabby's probably treated you really badly for the last six months because you fucked her husband. I'm just going to keep saying it because apparently you need reminding that you did it. Yeah, she says you treat me like dirt. And this is coming from the girl who's like pampered and getting more food and time than she deserves. Right? I wonder why she treats you like dirt. I mean, they literally asked you to be their surrogate so they could keep you in the country because they considered you family. And yeah, Gabby had a bit of a hard time once Carlos started, like, prioritising you. And yeah, she did behave in a selfish manner. But that was the deal, okay? Gabby is selfish. We've been through this. We have been through this. So anyway. What a bitch. Xiaomei calls Gabby a bitch. What a bitch. <laughs> um, and so she takes this opportunity to give her a reality check and tells her exactly what's going to happen once that baby pops out. Threatening deportation, telling her that she's going to be on all fours in a rice paddy before the epidural wears off. Well, that is what happens when you start treating Gabby like crap. Yeah. But then it, it was just a rough scene for Gabby. We're, we're used to seeing such a beautiful Gabby. Like a put together. Gabby's always fabulous and flawless. And now all of a sudden she's having to wait hand and foot on the woman that had an affair with her husband. Mm, that like, is hard times. It is hard times. What a bitch. So we move on to Susan, who is shaving a comatose mic and apparently cutting his face up in the process. <laughs> the doctor comes in to tell her that there's been no change. But Susan is confident that he will wake up. And come back to her. Yeah, poor Mike. He can't say no to having his face carved like some slab of meat. Right? The doctor's like, you know, we've, we've got people here that can do that for him. And she's like, I think he'd want me to do it. And I'm like, I really think Mike would want someone who isn't going to butcher his face, Susan. Right? When she turns his face and there's like five different tissue bits. But I do like this scene. Susan has a really hopeful attitude. Or she's deluding herself. But either way, it's very sweet. And I do feel very sad for her. She might be deluding herself. Who knows? Like, it could very well be delusion. But if you let that delusion take over, you're just going to... It just leads to depression. Like, let's not forget that six months previously, she was waiting for him to meet her at Dogger's Point um, <laughs> to propose. Yeah. And now all of a sudden he's in a coma and he's been in a coma for six months. Mm. So we cut to Brie, who is having dinner with Orson, who pops the question. She's rightfully a bit hesitant, but she does end up agreeing and Orson seems sinisterly happy about this. Right? I can't believe that Orson's proposing after six months. What the hell? Yeah, six months is very very fast. And Brie should know better because didn't George propose to her a lot quicker than that? (laughs) George did propose to her a lot faster than that. She'd only just buried Rex like I don't know, God knows how long before George proposed to her. And then look what happened there. Oh, poor Brie. And Brie's there like checking out the engagement ring or whatever and Orson's there eating a bit of the cake like everything's falling into place. Yeah, they really want you to think that he's off. Screwing Brie over. That's what they want you to think. That Brie's got some more terrible taste in men. Yeah, something bad's coming for Brie. Yeah. 
episode. We cut to a new character now, Ian Hainsworth. I know, I know. Let's just get this over with. Um, (laughs) Ian is at the same hospital as Susan and his wife is also in a coma after a horseback riding accident because they're both bougie people. (laughs) It's been three years, apparently, for poor old Ian. And in that time, he has avoided contact with people as much as possible until he meets a Miss Susan Meyer. And eventually they become friends. Now, six months later, he is bringing coffee to Mike's bedside and he invites Susan for a coffee outside of the hospital, like like a date kind of thing. Yeah, a date. But she has to turn him down because she's already got plans meeting with the girls and she asks him what time it is and so he decides to get her a watch. <laughs> yeah, so we finally have uh, one of my least favourite characters in the whole show, Ian. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there is a character I dislike more than Ian. No. <laughs> but talk about some dark humour with Susan and Ian having a meet-cute in the hospital while their partners are in comas. That's right? fantastic. I mean, I understand it's been three years for Ian and six only six months for Susan, but still six months is a lot of time to spend with someone, your partner, the person you have feelings for in a coma. And Ian can probably feel like he can confide in Susan because she is going through the same thing. And so I do get that they would form a friendship. I do think that buying her a watch is a little bit excessive. Yeah, I think, to be honest, their whole relationship could be its own show entirely. But also, I've dated people who might as well have been in comas while I was dating them. So I kind of feel Susan here as well. I'm sat right here, babe. Not not you. (laughs) (laughs) So, Brie has called the girls together for lunch to invite them to a dinner that her and Orson are having. However, the girls can tell that she is hiding something and they refuse to go to Brie's dinner until Brie tells them why she is actually having it. So she takes off her elegant white gloves and that's when everyone notices the engagement ring. Everyone's gagged. Oh, wow, you move a bit too fast, don't you? And oh, blah, 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 and all of that sort of stuff. And conversation moves to sex. Brie tells the girls she hasn't had sex with him yet and Gabby finds this absolutely hilarious and we have a bit of a clip. Actually, uh, no, we haven't had sex yet. We're waiting until we get married. Oh my god, you're serious? No sex at all? Not even... Whatever you're alluding to, no. But but you're gonna get married. You wouldn't buy a car without at least taking it for a little test drive? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Gabby's got a point. Well, yeah, the whole notion of not having sex before marriage almost seems a bit archaic now. Yeah, I mean, there are still people out there that want to go down that route, and respect to you, you do you, and if that is what's interesting for you and that's how you want to proceed then that's that's not a problem but i i side with gabby in that you don't buy a car without taking it for a test drive yeah i just like gabby i would have been like are you joking i don't really know why brie doesn't why i don't get what brie's mentality is i love brie in this scene with the gloves she's looking so fancy she's bougie enough to invite all of her friends to lunch to invite them to dinner yeah that's so strange, but so brief. Yeah. I also, Lynette, that was a bit unnecessary, wasn't it? Wow, you move fast. <laughs> Backhander with that ring in my hand. Well, I don't blame her. If I was her friends, I'd be a bit concerned for her, to be honest, after yeah. what she's been through. Yeah. So Tom and Lynette are getting ready for Parker's birthday party. And Kayla has been invited, but Lynette has lied to Nora and told her it's just going to be a quiet afternoon at home. Tom is afraid that Kayla will tell Nora about the party, which I think is a very valid fear. Well, yeah, kids... Because, kid, yeah, you, what are you going to do? Turn to Kayla and be like, don't tell your mum, though. Right, that's a bit bad parenting. And Lynette seems very offended that Tom would be scared of Nora more than her. That was a dynamic that I didn't really like very much. Well, when when Lynette's like, you're more afraid of Nora than you are of me. I was like, I don't really like this dynamic. <laughs> well, I get a little bit what Lynette's saying. No, I get it. I just don't like. Are you trying to say that you would you're, you would rather stand up? To me, than stand up to Nora. I'd rather you guys just didn't have a relationship that's built on fear. <laughs> that's true. That is very true. But Tom does kind of outsmart Lynette here by saying she's gonna find out. Nora will find out. You can't keep this from Nora, especially if Kayla is invited. So you might as well have just bitten the bullet and invited Nora. Yeah. Like, there was. you might as well have just done that because not inviting Nora is just going to cause so many more problems in the future. Yeah, this was not your best moment, Lynette. <laughs> no, it really wasn't the best moment for, for Lynette. But girls, girls desperate. Yeah, she just wants some peace and quiet. She just wants a bit of time without Nora. And at the moment, she can't get to- like she can't get her family without Kayla, and she can't get Kayla without Nora. I feel for her. Yeah. Susan is meeting Ian at Jane's bedside now, but this time with smoothies. I despise strawberry, so I'll take the strawberry. Oh god, that was so awful. Anyway, Ian makes a lame attempt at a joke and invites Susan on a date. 
This shocks Susan, who accidentally throws her smoothie over Jane's comatose body, and before Ian notices, she quickly throws a blanket over the evidence before Ian comes back. I think you know what I'm going to play. Yeah. That was a clumsy as hell Susan moment. I really hate to say this because I don't like Ian, but he is coming across as really really nice and sweet here. Why? Just inviting her out for lunch and stuff, or dinner or whatever. He's just, he's just coming across as charming and nice. Ugh. It's hard to say because I don't like him. Yeah, I know, I know. I'm and it's hard, for to me to, it's hard for me to agree because I don't like him. I'm trying to be unbiased and just look at it, look at it as a human person. But even Ian's there like, I've been in my situation longer than you have. And I'm like, it's not bloody competition, Ian. No, but what he means is, I've been here for longer than you have. So I, I know that eventually you might get the feeling that you need to go out and see other people. Yeah, like and... I'll, I've been in the situation longer. So I understand if you're not in that place yet. Hmm. And I think that puts a really interesting question in Susan's mind. But we won't, we'll get that in another scene. Yeah. Which I can't wait to talk about. No, me either, me either. So Nora gives Lynette a call and asks to speak to Kayla. However, she can hear a party in the background. <laughs> Lynette still attempts the lie. <laughs> but Nora clearly, like, clearly doesn't buy it. And so they have 10 minutes to get rid of the party bits and apparently take it all over to Gabby's place. This is real shade. Well, Lynette, how like, awkward was it when she all, all Nora can hear in the background is... Yeah. Nothing, nothing. We're just having a quiet evening in. I'd have, I'd have been like, kids, can you turn the TV down? <laughs> That's what I would have said. And then I would have gone into the next room. Yeah, they're watching a film. Yeah, they're watching, like, I don't know, Ferris Bueller's Day Off or something. Something with, like, party noises or some shit. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but like, literally, it's shade. Because she calls Gabby and she's like, Gabby, I need to borrow your back garden. <laughs> oh, I we take full responsibility for anything the pony does. Yeah, this scene is chaos. They have to move all this party stuff over. There's balloons, there's banners, there's a pony. They do it the right way, though. Oh, there's 20 bucks or 10 bucks or however much they offer for the kid that can carry the most shit. That is the way to do it. <laughs> yeah. So good job, guys. And so as all of the kids are running across the street from Lynette's house to Gabby's, Edie is trying her best to sell this property to a couple that have heard some strange things about the neighborhood that, you know, they just want a really nice, quiet place to settle down. And Edie assures them that there is no quieter street than Wisteria Lane. And now she opens the door to like show those people out. That's when all the kids are running around. So she slams it quickly. <laughs> Let me show you the media room. I love that. <laughs> so there's yeah. no quieter street. And then the first time that it's probably ever happened, you've got a whole ton of party kids running across the lane. That, that's probably never happened. That's probably, no, it will never happen again. Poor Edie. Yeah. Girl's really trying her hardest, but um, she can't She can't get past the stampede of children, Karen McCluskey. <laughs> Edie trying to sell a house is quite a funny gag in this episode. Yeah. I love it. They do successfully move everything until Lynette and Tom remember the birthday cake. And so Lynette runs back home to grab it. And that's when Nora enters before Lynette can get away. When um, Nora enters, she gives me some real energy. I'm just going to play a clip of what what this reminds me of. Well, well. What a glittering assemblage. I must say, I really felt quite distressed at not receiving an invitation. You're not welcome here. <laughs> oh dear. What an awkward situation. That was Nora all over. Was that, was that Maleficent? Yeah. <laughs> But Nora's given me some real Maleficent energy right now. Yeah, she's not invited to the party. I must say, I was quite distressed to not receive an invitation. I will give credit where credit's due for Lynette slamming that cake on the floor and kicking it out of the room. Like sliding it across the floor. That was smooth as fuck. Like, honestly, good job, Lynette. I wonder how many cakes they had to ruin to get the shot. <laughs> right? How many cakes were there that Lynette had to kick? Because let's face it, each time it was just going to hit something and get ruined. <laughs> and then they'd have to clean and then start the scene again. <laughs> Uh, so Nora questions Lynette on where the kids are, and she does fall for Lynette's lies eventually. Until one lonely little kid comes running out of the bathroom, party hat and everything, mm -hmm. and he's like, Where did everybody go? This poor kid. This poor little kid. <laughs> he's so confused. Oh, you didn't check. You didn't check that you had every child. If you hadn't have forgotten the cake, you would have just gone into Gabby's garden, and that poor little kid would have come walking out, no Lynette around, bumped into a Nora, and that kid would have been the one that had to deal with Nora's wrath. Also, Mr. Outfit Man, the hell is Nora wearing here? <laughs> oh, God, it was hideous. She's got a yellow blazer with blue flowers all over it, brown shorts. Mm. What's happening? Yeah, What's it's happening? not great. It's not great. It's a little white trash. Ugh. It's the kind of thing that Jenny's mum would wear in Forrest Gump. And they've got that like, shitty little house and surrounded <laughs> by the fields and they're like chewing on wheat or whatever. I don't know. It's, we, we don't see Jenny's mum, but... It's one of the weirdest outfits I've seen in the show. <laughs> yeah. Which is perfect for Nora. It is. It is very perfect for Nora. It definitely gives off Nora's vibe. 
we do get a standard Nora vibe from that outfit. Mm. Nora runs outside looking for the party and sees a loose red balloon, which tells her everything she needs to know, really. Uh, Lynette manages to block her and Tom and Kayla come out, hearing the commotion. He apologises to Nora and invites her in, which seems to be too much for Lynette, who goes to leave. And after a brief eye-opening conversation for Tom, he goes back and says goodbye to Nora and bigs up the party so that Nora looks like the bad guy to Kayla. And then this seems to work and Nora leaves in a mood. Well, yeah, I mean, Nora, were you really going to rock up and demand that Kayla leaves this party just because you weren't invited? I mean, it's a kid's party and there are no other adults around. Yeah. Because it's not that kind of kid's party. It's not the kid's party where the kids play and the adults drink. It's just yeah. the parents look after all the kids and the, the other parents just stay at home. Yeah. You're not really you just, supposed you, to stay, Nora. No, you just, Nora, you take that moment without Kayla. You have like an adult afternoon. You have a bath, drink a glass of wine, read a book, like do something that you don't get to normally do because you're too busy looking after Kayla. Yeah. She's just annoyed that she wasn't told there was going to be a party, but you would have stayed and that's why you weren't told. Exactly. So even if Lynette's party lie didn't get found out by Nora... Nora would have asked Kayla about the movie because yeah. the lie that she told you know, Nora was, oh, you know, Tom's, Tom's taken them to the movies. And then Kayla would have come back and Nora would have been like, how's the movie? And Kayla's like, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's best not to lie. Yeah. Don't lie to crazy. Don't lie. But don't lie to people that you're trying to be above because it's going to come back to bite you. Yeah, it really does. I felt quite bad for Lynette here, but I also did feel really bad for Tom as well. Because, well, Lynette is clearly feeling the stress of six months of having to battle Nora. Tom's, Tom's... seemingly not get as much backing from Tom, but I feel bad for Tom. He's in a really unwinnable situation. Yeah, Tom's just like the happy middle. Tom's Tom's just the trying to be the, the middleman that's keeping all parties happy. Yeah, satisfied. I can tell that he's really trying to balance it, but yeah. with Lynette and Nora, they clash so hard and you can't appease them both. No, you can't. They're just they're too they're too different. They they won't they can't settle with each other. There will always be an argument. There will always be some sort of issue. Yeah, and so, this is just the start, guys. Yeah. Just you wait. <laughs> but they didn't count on the fact that all they, all they needed to get rid of Nora was Kayla. Yeah. Anyway, Gabby is looking for Xiaomei, who appears to have taken all of her shit and run off. She drives over to Carlos to ask if he has seen her, and they go on a little adventure. It's another Gabby and Carlos adventure, like the good old days. Yeah, I can't believe you lost our baby. <laughs> Fuck it, I, I, I know where it is. It's in some crazy Chinese woman. God, he does my head in. Yeah. They do end up, I'm assuming it's Chinatown. I'm not really quite sure where they actually end up, but they end up at a restaurant in what looks like a Chinatown and find a friend of Xiaomei's and question her. It looks like Xiaomei called her friend to bitch about Gabby's deportation joke. And so the friend isn't really interested in helping them. The entire restaurant is loving the argument, but Gabby ends up losing and walks out the restaurant with food all down her front. Yeah, I'm on Gabby's side. I'm still on Gabby's side. She made a joke about deportation. She probably didn't know it was a joke in the moment. Because she was so angry, but these people need to stop treating Jamey like she's some poor innocent girl who just wants to get by. Yeah. Yeah, like the woman was just like, she's just a poor innocent girl trying to live the American dream, just like your ancestors. And I'm just like, excuse me, but my ancestors did not fuck my husband. Yeah, don't get sassy because Jamey was having an affair with Carlos and she's being rude to Gabby all the time, who's serving her hand on foot. Yeah. Pregnant with my baby, and she has run off, okay? So, yes, I get it. You're Xiaomi's friend. First and foremost, you're going to be Xiaomi's friend. And also, a deportation joke does not sit well on the shoulders of a lawful lot of people. I get that. But she just wanted some leverage to frighten her with, just to make her tone it down a bit. Yeah, she needed to remind Xiaomi of the fact that they are on equal levels, okay? Xiaomi is not above Gabby on a higher pedestal. Just because she's heavily pregnant and in that wonderful bed of Gabby's. Yeah. So no, that's that was all it. That was all it was. It was banter. In the words of Gabby, it was banter. Has this country got to the point where you can't even joke with the help? Oh, I have. That was that wasn't a good line. Yeah, I think that was just kind of. I think that was the moment. Really, that just. <laughs> so we then cut to Edie showing a couple around the young house and bragging about all the storage space. And she opens up a cupboard and finds Charmaine inside stuffing her face. <laughs> and so she quickly closes the cupboard and tells the, these people, have I shown you the media room? <laughs> right, poor Edie. We have another Edie trying to sell sell the house gag. Edie just can't get a break in this episode. It's my favourite gag of, of the episode. I think it's so funny. I remember when we first watched it and every time Edie was trying to sell the house, I was just laughing. It was a poor, I feel really bad for Edie. And also at the end of that scene, Gabby, girl had noodles in her cleavage. I mean, having a Chinese woman eating sandwiches inside the the closet space could be a good seller. Like, look how much storage there is. You could literally eat sandwiches in this closet. It's like a room. Yeah. I don't really understand why she was hiding in the closet in the first place. <laughs> I mean, it's an empty house. Yeah, true. Like, maybe she had them coming in. Possibly, possibly. 
So Orson is interested in no longer waiting until they get married to bend Brie over the kitchen island and go to town. But she is still standing firm, pun intended there actually, by the way, on her values and believes it will be better if they wait. Ew, Brie and Orson kiss really loudly. <laughs> they That was a really loud kiss. <laughs> Maybe it's because it was so close to the camera. Maybe, yeah. Like, it was not very good. It wasn't very nice at all. But Brie is still standing firm. But of course, it's the man that changes his mind at the last minute. Of course, it's the man that's like, yeah, I can't wait any longer. Yeah, but it's not working, Orson. Sorry. No, sorry about that. Actors want opening night to be perfect. That's why they rehearse. That is why they rehearse. But he has a very valid point. Sorry, Orson. But have you ever heard of improvisation? Mm. <laughs> you get improv nights. So Susan is visiting Mike once again. But this time, she is visiting to ask him permission to go on a date with Ian. She tells him that she won't do it if he wakes up and tells her not to, but right now she just needs someone to talk to as she's really lonely. She hugs him, tells him that she loves him and goes to leave, but not without reassuring him that it really is just dinner. It was a really sweet scene. This is a heartbreaking scene. Yeah, it was really sad. Terry Hatcher's acting is really fantastic here. Yeah. It comes across as really heartbreaking and quite tragic, especially when she starts pleading with him. She's like, yeah. wake up, wake up. Yeah, it got me choked up. Like watching that scene, I was getting emotional at it, like with her desperation, because I'm there so desperate to not have Ian in this show that I'm there <laughs> like, Mike, wake up, wake up, please, <laughs> please just wake up. But we waited so long for them to get together. And then they got together and then he was going to propose. Yeah. Because he was like, you know what? We've, we've been, we've done this rigmarole. We've known each other for months. I know it's right. And then. And then awesome ruins it. The writers just don't want us to have nice things. No. It oh. was like the, the desperation from Susan really does break your heart. Yeah. Like, well, the, the... Terry Hatcher got some praise from all the critics about in this episode. Oh, really? Yeah. A lot of them said that she was really good in this scene and stuff. Mm. I would, I mean, I would imagine so. I mean, it was a very good scene. It was nice to see less clumsy Susan and more human susan yeah so gabby drops carlos off home whilst on the phone to ed gabby get off that phone while you're driving girl not i agree good, not I good. agree uh, ed has apparently called her to let her know where Shamay is and that she's safe carlos gives gabby attitude for endangering their baby and gabby decides to tell him exactly what her past six months has been like waiting on carlos's mistress every day and carlos tries to say it's different as Shamay is their surrogate but Gabby shuts him up by telling him that Xiaomei will be fine. Once the baby is born, she can go off and live her life, but Gabby will be stuck a single mother. Carlos apologises, and as he goes to make some further comments, Gabby decides she's no longer interested and drives off mid-sentence. Oh my god, so Carlos ran. He's the worst. He is the worst. Oh, Gabby's oh like, god. oh, she's fine, everything turned out okay. And he's like, how can you say that? You endangered the life of our baby today. Fuck off. Right? And he was just like, oh, you know, you told me to go have an affair. Blah, blah, blah. Mm, meaningless affair. Yeah, meaningless. Like, the fact that she was the surrogate makes this affair worse than the one with John. 100%. Right. Um, what, because that was meaningless. I mean, it grew to be less meaningless, but... Yeah, but it started. It started, out, started. it started because you were being a bad husband, Carlos. This didn't start because Gabby was being a bad wife. Yeah, because she brought up the very valid point. She was like, how would you have liked it if an hour after you found out about John and me, you had to rub his feet and, you know, make him... <laughs> dinner and Carlos that's when Carlos was like it's different mm, yeah Charmaine's a surrogate no it's not different but this is a powerful moment Gabby you call him out you tell him how yeah. it is and I love that yeah and also <laughs> she's got a point Charmaine is going to be fine she's got her green card now her green card was that baby and once that baby's born she's an American citizen she's allowed to stay in the country yeah so she can go off and live her American dream just like her friend said exactly the, de the deportation threat was an empty threat yeah it was more of a just a reminder. Not a anything. nice threat. Not a nice threat. We're not standing by deportation jokes. Like We don't stand by deportation, just saying that, even though we've made an awful lot of comments this episode about how we totally stand by Gabby and her deportation threat. But also when she drove off and just left him standing there before he could say anything else, that was even, queen. That was even more powerful. That was queen. That was like queen moment right there. It's Carlos is just like, I would just for reference. And she's just like, drive. Vroom. Not interested. Bye, Felicia. <laughs> she's like, no, I had my say. <laughs> So, Orson is doing the washing up, and Brie is questioning why, as she's already done it. Normally, that would piss me off. I've done that before. Yeah, I know he has. <laughs> and it's completely unnecessary. Well, if it's not right, I have to make it right. Oh I'm sorry. God, oh my god. Orson says he noticed some streaks, and teaches her some cleaning tricks, which seems to get the girl so damn horny. She's there, like, leaning up against that kitchen island while he's there, like, oh, for really tough stains, I use a mixture of this and this. And Brie's there, like, ha! <sighs> <laughs> yeah, Orson getting Brie to have sex with him by schooling her about cleaning products. Is this a Perfect. Is, is this a like a ploy on Orson's part? Was Orson genuinely just teaching her cleaning tricks because we saw at the very beginning of the episode Orson's very anal, he's I... very particular, or did Orson know full well that doing something like this would get potentially get Brie interested? 
Who can say? I don't know. Who can say? So Bree decides that she can no longer wait and drags him to the bedroom. And he goes down on her, or starts to anyway, and she tells him that she doesn't do that. She's a Republican. But also doesn't take no for an answer. And he goes, he goes downtown, gives Bree a bit of a shock, to which she runs out in panic and goes to the hospital. <laughs> yeah, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Well, good for you, Bree. This is the scene where I sit and realise just how perfect Watson is for Brie. Right. Like, oh yeah, I noticed there were streaks, so I'm I'm washing them, I'm wiping them down with undiluted white wine vinegar. And Brie's like, I've never heard of that. Well, I don't think she's ever been with a man who would ever do the washing up. Mm-hmm. For one thing. True, true. I mean, he's a bit shady, but good for you, girl. Yeah. He does the washing up, he goes down on you. Yeah. I was, but what does that mean? Oh, I don't do that. I'm a Republican. I, I'm not sure. I think it's about having pleasure with sex without producing, creating. Maybe. Do you know what I got from it? I got that Republicans don't care about the needs of anyone else. <laughs> so they're not going to go down on people. <laughs> well, maybe. Why would I go down on a person? That's pleasure for them, not pleasure for me. Well, I think, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know if they stan oral sex. How has a girl gone this far in life never giving or receiving oral? I mean, no wonder Rex was having an affair. <laughs> Like, just, like, it, it boggles the mind that you've never given or received oral. <laughs> well, I mean, all it took was him to say, no, it's fine, just let me do it, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, and she's like, okay. So, Rex should have tried harder. Yes, Rex should have tried harder. But we, we have seen in season one that Rex did not give Brie enough credit. Exactly. So, she is getting seen to by a nurse while she's describing her symptoms. Getting seen to again. Um, and it turns out she had an orgasm. Apparently, it's the girl's first one. I love this nurse. I'm going to take a wild swing here. Were you having sex? She was like, what were you doing? I was laying down with, with my fiancé. We should were we, resting. Should we play the clip? Oh, yes, we do. We have a clip. Okay. I'm going to take a wild swing here. Were you having sex? Sort of. Miss Vanderkamp, I think you may have had an orgasm. No, no, no. I've had orgasms before. Mm. How would you describe them? You know, that warm sensation, that tingling feeling of relief when it's over. No, no, this was much... Better? Yes. That's because it was an orgasm. Oh. Oh, Hooray! Bree's first orgasm. Like, Bree's first orgasm. I feel so sorry for women if you get orgasms that infrequently. Well, the way she described how what she thought was an orgasm is very heartbreaking for me. Oh my god, that was the best moment ever. Oh yeah, I've had them before, that tingling relief when it's over. <laughs> <laughs> tingling relief when it's over. <laughs> that girl, <laughs> you've had some bad sex. Well, clearly she's been in a world where the man has the sex and all she can do is lay there and take it yeah. until he finishes. Yeah. Poor, poor girl. Oh my god, tingly. I, I, we've all been there though, haven't we? Oh, we've all been there. We've all been there when, you know, we just, we get that relief when it's over. We should never have started. <laughs> I love this nurse though. The way that she's just like, oh my god, another middle-aged upper-class woman who hasn't had an orgasm. The fact that Brie linked orgasms to stroke. Yeah, she was I like, think I, oh might no. have had a, I think I might have had a small stroke. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you, Brie. Yeah, it's about time, girl. If you've never had an orgasm before, it's about time. You go back home and you sit on that dryer. Enjoy yourself, girl. Now you've had one, you can keep going. Yeah, she's gonna. She's got a whole journey ahead of her. Right? You've opened so many doors for yourself, Bree. So, uh, a mysterious woman is walking towards Bree's house in the rain, and tonight is Bree's engagement dinner, and everyone is having parties, celebrating. It's fabulous time. Yeah, we get like the only shot of Julie and Sophie in the whole episode. <laughs> yeah. So, which is really weird. They right? look at Bree's ring. Why is Sophie even there? I think it was Sophie. It looked like Sophie from the side. It might not have been her, but it's pretty much the only... There's only like two shots of Julie when she's looking at her ring. Yeah. So the door knocks and Brie opens it to find Carolyn Bigsby, Orson's old neighbour, here to stir some shit up. Oh, she's so good. So good. She tells everyone that Arma's gone missing, nobody heard from her ever again, and Orson therefore killed her. Brie has no idea what she's talking about and politely asks Caroline, Caroline, I keep doing that. So disrespectful. I'm so sorry. Uh, she politely asks Carolyn to leave. Uh, Carolyn does, but not before telling Brie to not be surprised when she goes missing too. Strange thing. Strange concept. I get like scary movie three vibes. Like, how do you wake up dead? I <laughs> don't be. How can I be surprised when I go missing? I'm missing. I loved Carolyn's reaction though. It's pretty much the reaction I would have. Fine, marry him, go missing, whatever. See if I care. Like, right. I, out of the kindness of my heart, came to warn you. 
Bree goes into the kitchen to calm down. She asks Orson to be honest with her and tell her the truth. Orson apparently tried to find her, but her family told him that they hadn't heard from Mama. Apparently, Bree believes Orson and doesn't think that he would do that. Uh, apparently, Orson was granted terms of divorce on, like, um, abandonment. abandonment, I think is what Orson says. Like, this moment in the kitchen is really uncomfortable because Bree's there, like, okay, Orson, I believe you. And Orson's, like, clinging on to Bree for dear life. Like, he is squeezing that hand, girl. Oh, the red flags. Yeah, like, Orson wouldn't even let her go. The amount of red flags. She's just ignoring all of them. Yeah. I guess when you wear rose-tinted glasses, you can't see all the red flags. Yeah, I, I was literally about to quote that. I guess, you know, when you're wearing rose-tinted glasses, all the red flags just look like flags. <laughs> Best quote ever. Oh my god, thank you Princess Carolyn in Bojack Horseman for that quote. Oh, yep, that was it. She goes back to her guests, at which point Susan goes to speak to her, but Brie just raises her hand for Susan to be quiet. Yeah, she's just ignoring all these red flags. (laughs) Yeah, she's not getting it. It's alarming, but it's very Brie. It's very Brie. I mean, yeah, she ignored all the red flags of George. I wouldn't say she ignored the red flags. She actively acknowledged the red flags of George. She just chose to (laughs) go right past them. Yeah. (laughs) Brie doesn't have a good relationship with red flags. No, she doesn't. So... That brings us to the end of the episode, and Mary Alice ends by telling us that every storm brings hope that by morning, everything will be clean again, and stains will have disappeared. We see Brie clearly having her sort of thoughts on the Orson armour situation, or the Orson, the Orson armour drama, <laughs> um, which I think it should be forever known as. Lynette comes home to Tom and Kayla, Gabby comes home to a pregnant Chalmay, and Susan looks at an old photo of her and Mike. However, the rain clears away, some sort of like mud... In clay a, some sort of thing, site. yeah, at a building site, yeah, um, revealing a body. But whose is it? The fuck is that? Yeah, what the fuck is that? What is that? Where was the title sequence? There was no title sequence. We got zero title sequence in this episode. Weird. I think it's probably because it was just like the first episode. So that was the end of the episode. It was the end of season three, episode one. What a great start. It was. It was really interesting. It started off the season really well. Yeah, I have to say this episode got a lot of good reviews and good critiques Mm. from all the critics and the audience and stuff saying that it sort of felt like it was going back to its roots or it was doing what it does best and i have to agree it has the funny moments and it it's not pretending to be what it's not it's just a good episode yeah yeah it it sets up some form of season-long drama yeah, I love, it, it, I love that it sets up a mystery. It does. It, it, we've gone back to season one. Well, I say we've gone back to season one. Season two set up a mystery as well, to be fair. But they didn't follow it through very well. Quite consistently. Like, the season two mystery was very on-off. So, yeah, this sets up a nice, interesting drama with a, a main character again. But it keeps it more consistently at the forefront of stories like season one with Mary Alice and why she killed herself. Yeah, exactly. So, we're going to move on to our next segment where Joel's going to... Uh, do his new segment. What is your segment? <laughs> best and worst what? It's not even best and worst anymore. It's just one. What is it's it? It's just one. And it's gayest moment. Oh. Because we're gay. We're boyfriends. Who and knew? We, we are, right? And we are watching possibly one of the gayest shows created in the, the sort of like early, late, mid noughties, kind of like in the noughties time. In the category, in yeah. The, yeah, the category. And so, uh, well, mid noughties, it started in 2004, really, didn't it? And we don't even touch on the amount of gay shit that we see in each episode. All right, then. So give us the gayest moment so the gayest moment is brie getting engaged after six months <laughs> that's big gay energy right there well because the gays move so fast gays move quickly we like i mean i don't even remember how long we were going out before i actually moved in with you um, about six months if that no it was about six months no it was less than six months no it was about six months but I was like, you practically live here. Do you want to move in? <laughs> yeah, like I was there already. So I, I pretty much, we've probably been going out like two or three months and I just moved myself in. <laughs> just like, gays do that. We do that. Um, and so that was big gay energy. But... It's like when um, you were helping me move into my flat, which is now our flat. Yeah. And you, you put about it on Instagram, like moving in. And everyone was like, already? Yeah, everyone was like, oh my God, already? And I was just like, no, I'm just helping him move in. But, but it would have been, it would not have been a surprise because that's that's gay energy. It is big gay energy. Big gay Al, give him big gay energy. Play, play the sting for big gay energy. What made you choose that as the sting exactly? <laughs> oh, because I wanted something like, um magical and gay and fabulous and i just like i felt like i just want something like twinkly you know okay but an honorary shout out does go to my original choice when i was first watching this yeah which is edie feeling herself up in the rain (laughs) because us gays do that as well like we're in a naughty music video we'll be whipping our hair around in the rain 
Yeah, feeling I, our best Christina Aguilera. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So a little honorary shout out goes to Edie for that, like that trench coat, feeling her hair and the rain moment. For a bit of opposition, did you want to do like straightest moment? <laughs> I can do straightest moment, but I haven't picked straightest moment for this episode. Okay, can so, you think of one? You don't. You don't have to do it. I was just wondering if you wanted to do that as well. I thought. No, no, that, no, no, thing. no. That'd be a good idea. Um, Obviously, as a joke, we don't think that all straight people are terrible. The straightest thing that we saw in this episode, ironically, considering all of the men in the episode, is probably Susan shaving Mike. <laughs> oh, that was that was relatively butch from Susan. Good job, Sue. So straightest moment is something that's kind of butch or can cause pain or is illogical. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Love it. So yeah, that was my award. And so now we move on to B segment of best and worst parent, I'm assuming you are keeping? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So who do you have for best parent of the episode? My award for... Best parent of the episode... Goes to Tom for doing his best with the kids and with Kayla too. Lynette is a solid runner-up, but I had to give it to Tom for trying his best to really balance it all out. I Yeah, I, I assumed as much. And find a situation that he can't really win. Yeah. But also Lynette was a bit shady with all the lies. Yeah. Lies! But she's having a hard time. She's having a bad time. She is. She is having a bad time. I kind of assumed that you would give it to Tom. That's, that doesn't surprise me that much. <laughs> I think that he... No, I think that Tom deserves it. I think he is trying his best. Ultimately, he's... There are times when he's maybe not hitting the mark, but he's trying. He's really trying. He gets credit for the attempt. And he's in a wild situation which no one saw coming. No, and, like, Jesus knows I wouldn't know how to handle that situation either. Like, Mm. who can really comment on that situation unless you've been in it? Like, it's such a far-fetched situation. Yeah. So, uh, who do you have for your worst parent of the episode? My award for... Worst parent of the episode... Goes to Nora! Oh, oh my God. Okay, we're going to hear that for quite quite a while, I think. It's just because she wants to take Kayla away from this cool party... Just because she wasn't invited, but it's a kid's party and there weren't any other parents anyway. But Nora is a child. But two times in this episode, we've seen Nora act this way where she's like, I'm just going to take Kayla away then if I can't get what I want. I'm taking my daughter. Yeah, manipulation. Like, oh, fine. Well, I, if I take Kayla away, then Kayla will sulk and then Tom will look like the bad dad. And exactly. And will look like the mean stepmom. And I can't stand kids being used as weapons in your war games. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. I would say there's a solid picks, babe. Thanks, doll. You're welcome. So, yes, that was the end of season three, episode one. Listen to the rain on the roof. Please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Please do um, share us with all your friends. And if you'd like to send in some lovely mail, where can people do that, Joel? You can find us on Instagram at Boyfriends Review. And you can find us on Twitter at BFS Review. We also have email, which is boyfriendsreview at outlook.com. And all of our artwork is done by Louis, who you can find on Instagram at DocRedMonkDesign. There's also a link to his Etsy page where he does commissions. Mm-hmm. And we love interacting with everyone. We've got some, we've had some nice messages. We've um, been speaking to people on Instagram. We've been replying to emails. And it's always a fun time. So please do send in your thoughts, queries, comments, and theories. Yes. Love it. We do. We absolutely love it. And we love you guys. And next week we'll be doing season three, episode two, It Takes Two. We'll <laughs> see you then. We'll have some new content and we'll be, we'll be back in your ear holes. Yes. See you soon. Bye. Bye.